Hey listeners, welcome to 10x Growth Strategies podcast. This is your host Preeti Padmanabhan, technology executive, investor and board member. Today we will feature the book To Be Honest: Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice and Purpose by Ron Karuchi. Ron is the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent. He works with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leadership and industry. From startups to fortune 10s, turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth, Ron has worked in more than 25 countries in four continents. In addition, he's a regular contributor to HBR and Forbes and has been featured in Fortune CEO magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week, Inc, Smart Business and Thought Leaders. It is an honor to have you Ron on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Preeti, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so curious to hear your thoughts about the book to be honest so let's get right to it i heard that you conducted a 15 year study on honesty why so extensive and why now i think we don't have to look around very far preeti to see that our world is in a trust recession that earning and keeping the trust of others is becoming harder than ever um when we began the study it wasn't with the aim of writing a book but it was in the aim of of being able to predict you know if we could learn under what conditions otherwise good-hearted people will choose to do less than honest things what conditions create the impetus to say the right thing do the right thing and say and do the right thing for the right reason and what conditions create the impetus to lie cheat and serve your own interests first i thought if we could predict those conditions we could promote more of the conditions that get people to do the right thing and perhaps find a way to deter the conditions that have people do the wrong thing. I don't I didn't know that we could actually learn or prove anything when we set out to do it. We use a really really cool uh, artificial intelligence technology to analyze that much data over 15 years, but when the data findings came back, uh, statistically being able to actually prove quantitatively and multiplicatively what those conditions are, it was compelling enough to want to write the book. That is fantastic. I can't wait to hear more. Tell us about the conditions that your research uncovered that shape honest behavior. There were more than 4 in the da- data, but the ones that were most statistically significant are the ones we wrote about. And they're 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 interestingly hiding in plain sight in all of our organizations. The first one is a clear consistent identity. Be who you say you are. All of our organizations make promises to their employees, to their shareholders, to their public in the form of mission statements, value statements, purpose statements. Well, it turns out that those words actually carry a lot of weight. And if people's experience of the wor- those words matches your behavior, if they if your say do gap is a one to ratio is a one to one, you're three times more likely to have people actually be honest with you. But if if there's a disconnect between who you say you are and what you actually do, you've now institutionalized duplicity. you've now told your organization around here we say one thing and do another and when that's the case now you're three times more likely to have people be dishonest with you the second was accountability all of our accountability systems are typically set up to to measure and quantify people's contributions which often ends up being very demeaning and demoralizing but if your accountability systems are laced with dignity meaning people feel like their work is being honored and fairness and or justice meaning that the the playing field is level for me to be successful around here as much as anybody else now you're four times more likely to have people be honest 
But if I feel like the system is rigged, or I feel like I'm just another cog in your wheel and my work it doesn't matter to you, now you're four times more likely to have me be, be dishonest with you because now I have to hide my mistakes and embellish my accomplishments. The third was transparency and decision-making. If I walk into a room of people in an organization, often referred to as a meeting, and what I believe is happening in that room is an honest exchange of ideas, a free-flowing sharing of perspectives. I feel like the person presenting in front of the room doesn't have an agenda, but is presenting a balanced view of their data. And I believe that if I were to offer a point of view that contradicted the prevailing one in the room, I'd be welcome to do that. That's transparency. And now you're three and a half times more likely to have me be honest with you. But if I walk into that room and I think it's nothing but orchestrated theater, I believe that there's no free-flowing exchange of ideas in the room, that people are hiding how they really feel and nodding their heads in, in the direction that the person in front of the room wants them to nod in. And the last thing I think you want to hear from me is a point of view that differs. Now you're three and a half times more likely to have me be dishonest because I have to then go find the truth outside the room. And lastly, and probably the most surprising in our research was border wars, uh, the cross-functional relationships between at the seams of an organization where marketing meets sales or supply chain meets operations or R&D meets marketing or innovation, where all of our competitive value gets created. If those seams are stitched well, if there's cohesion there, if the natural tensions of those seams can be held well and conflict can be resolved, my perception of you on the other side of that seam is a colleague and someone who I value, you are six times more likely to have people be honest because now I understand that we're all part of a greater truth and a bigger story. But if those border wars are not managed well, if there's we and they conflict, if I believe that you are my rival or that you're an inconvenience to my work, now you have fragmented the organization. You know, we see silos all the time. And when you fragment the organization, you actually fragment the truth. So now we have dueling truths. And all I'm interested in is not finding a single source of truth, but I'm far more interested in proving that I'm right and you're wrong. And when that's the case, now you're six times more likely to have people be dishonest. The interesting thing about the model, Preeti, is that it's the statistics are cumulative. So if you are good, if you are reasonably masterful at all four of those things, you are 16 times more likely to have people be honest with you in your organization. But if you are terrible at all four of those things and, and you're failing on all those fronts, you are now 16 times more likely to find yourself on the headline newspaper story that you never wanted to be in of a scandal or some breach of trust. The interesting thing about honesty in this case is the data defines it not just as telling the truth, but really as truth, justice, and purpose, meaning you, you are prone to say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. It, it's a muscle. What we learned is that honesty is not a character trait. It's not some moral principle. It really is a capability. And if you want to be good at it, you actually have to work at it every day. I love that summary, Ron. Going deeper into your book will get us more clarity into all of these different aspects that you talked about, which seem far too familiar, right? Several of us working in organizations have seen those different situations happen. So let's dig into the first part that you talked about. Why is it important for leaders to embody their values? And what happens when they don't, not having that clear, consistent identity you talked about? Well, I think leadership today is hard. And you know, coming out of a global pandemic in an already politically polarized world, leaders begin their work distrusted. 
even if you were somebody's peer and trusted as a peer, the minute you elevate to a higher level, people assume that you can't be trusted. They assume that you're going to be out for yourself. So you have to sort of re-up your trust. When people can't predict how you're going to respond in a certain situation, when people don't know what it is you value or your values seem capricious, you're no longer safe to them. So I have to then be guarded. I can't be myself with you. Your hypocrisy is offensive to me. Um, even if you don't intend to be hypocritical, even if you believe that your actions match their words. It's, it's so stunning, Preeti. Whenever I ask leaders, do your people trust you? They often respond with this very incredulous look on their face like, well, well, why wouldn't they trust me? What that tells me is that what they're betting on is their good intentions, right? They assume because they mean to be trustworthy, because they intend to have you know, a say-do ratio of one-to-one, that therefore they should get extra credit for that. But the reality is they don't, they don't take the time to examine how, how others on the other side of their, experience, of their behavior experience them. And if, in fact, there really is a say-do consistency. And so they, they fall short. Uh, and they don't often know the currency that people trade in, right? So trust is a currency. People may trade that currency in based on your character. Uh, others may trade it based on your competence, some may trade, trade based on your personality traits. And if you don't know how it is others are extending or withholding their trust in you, you may seek to earn that trust in ways they don't care about. And so you have to know how it is others will choose or not to choose to trust you. You know, many leaders take for granted what it means. And because they believe they're trustworthy, they get perplexed when they find out they're not. I had one client who I had to break the news game after collecting some data and feedback that he had lost his team's trust and he got very defensive. And he said, but, but I'm always straightforward with them. And I tell them the truth and I get, I, I give them candid feedback and I try and create opportunities for them. Why wouldn't they trust me? I said, well, apparently when you're in meetings with them, you're a little bit impatient. And when they're speaking and sharing their points of view, if they don't get to the point quick enough, you sort of rush them or cut them off. And apparently when you get frustrated with them, you use sarcasm to express it. And he's defensively and dismissively said, well, everybody has a bad day. I said, well, apparently you have a lot of them because people have decided that you aren't safe, that when they're trying to express their points of view, if they're, if they're not perfect or succinct or crisply expressed the way you'd want to hear them, you don't want to hear them. And when they have determined that you're not safe, that means they've determined that you aren't trustworthy of their thinking and ideas. And this is a good guy. This was not a jerk, right? This is a good, a decent leader. But he never would have connected that behavior to his trustworthiness. Well, I certainly think uh, managers can learn a lot uh, on leadership uh, from what you just shared and how to make sure to create that safety that you talked about. Uh, it's very important. Um, before we get to the safety part, uh, I'm curious, you talked about the say-do gap. What should leaders do when they discover a say-do gap in their organization? Well, hopefully it's the first one they discover is their own and make amends, apologize for it. When you realize that you have behaved outside your intentions, let people know you're sorry and let people know what it is you intend to do to correct it. And if you're not sure, by all means, ask people. It's a very, here's a very simple thing you can do. Take the values or the brand promise or the purpose statement or mission or pick, pick one of your statements of your company, take it off the wall. And bring it into your next team meeting and ask your team, how well are we doing when it comes to living up to these promises? How well am I doing? Do you look at me as an example of these words or a contradiction to these words? If somebody were to follow our team around all day long with a video camera 
watching us, could that video be used to train employees on these values? Ask the hard questions, just raise the conversation and see what you learn. Absolutely. And I think the challenge becomes even harder in this remote world, Ron. That's one thing that I have faced as a leader to make sure that I am hearing the team members that I'm managing globally. So to be able to make sure to win the trust, uh, that has been a very uh, interesting journey. So tell me, how can leaders strengthen the process of accountability? You talked about accountability as the second most important condition. So how can leaders strengthen the process of accountability to make sure others are treated equitably and with dignity? couple of things here, Preeti. First of all, ask yourself honestly, where is their privilege in your organization? What roles are privileged? All organizations have them. If you're a technology company, your, your engineers are probably privileged. If, if you're a brand company, your marketers are probably privileged. If you're a high growth company, your salespeople are probably privileged. And that isn't to say that all work is created equal. It's not. There is some work that is more competitively valuable than other work. But if that translates into people being treated differently, then, and those privileges are disadvantaging other people from being successful or recognized, that's a problem. Root out those injustices, root out those unlevel playing fields and make them right. Ask yourself, whose voices do you listen to? Whose voices do you not listen to? When people come to you to talk about their performance, do they feel honored and respected? When you talk to people about their contribution, do you understand that you're not just evaluating their work anymore? that you're also evaluating them. Today, our knowledge workplace means that people's remit isn't just the number of cases they close, the number of files they process, or the number of t-shirts they print. Today, people's remit is their analysis, their creativity, their solutions, their perspective, their creative ideas. Their contribution is as much a reflection of them as anything. So when you talk about their work, you are talking about them. You can't say it's that personal. Do people walk away feeling honored? when you talk about their work. When they fall short, do they feel safe to talk to you about their failures? Do they feel safe enough to want to learn from you? Is your feedback for them developmentally creative and caring, or do you shame them and demean them? Ask your people, do they feel like they can be free to fail in front of you? Do you make it safe to learn when they fail? If people's uh, sense of their own contribution isn't honoring and dignifying, it means that they don't know that they matter. Your, your people come to work every day with two fundamental questions in their mind. Do I matter and do I belong? And your job is to make sure they never wonder whether or not the answer to those questions is yes. So do I matter and do I belong? Mm -hmm. Wow, very good. Did you have additional points to say about accountability? Did I cut you off there? You no, know, no, that, that, that was pretty much it. Preeti. All I would, I would add is simply this. If there are places in your organization where people are feeling injustice, are there bullies in your organization that you know people have to tolerate? Are there places where people don't feel heard? Are there people whose chance to shine keeps eluding them? Do you go out of your way to create opportunities to let other people shine? to have their voices be heard, to feel exposed and, and respected by the organization. Those are the kinds of things you can seek to do as a leader to make sure know, that people know that they are regarded. Excellent. Great tips on how to ensure accountability. You talked about transparency and decision-making, and I liked what you talked about, not an orchestrated theater. That was very funny. How should leaders balance transparency with discretion? Mm. Well, so many leaders err too much on the side of hiding things under the guise of discretion. But the reality is, um, it's just your, usually your own discomfort, your soothing when you do that. Of course, there are always going to be things 
that you have to hold that are inappropriate or just inappropriately timed to share with people. But it's usually far less than you think. People will decode you in some way. And if they can't decode your decision-making apparatus, if they can't predict what data, whose voices, what intuition, what experience you rely on to construct your choices, and they have to guess, they're going to feel off balance. They're going to feel anxious. Um, You want to make sure that how you come to decisions, especially the decisions that are going to disappoint people, the hard calls, which are your job to make. People can accept hard news. They can accept not getting their way if you give them the reasons for it. But if you dance around it, if you avoid hard feedback or hard decisions, or if you make all the decisions yourself, or if you're overly consensus seeking to the point of paralysis, or you you bathe too much in data to the point where the decisions long past due, people feel guarded because they can't trust. If you say yes too often to too many things under the guise of making people feel empowered or making people feel like they got to have their way, all you're doing is purchasing their loyalty. You're not actually doing what the organization really needs, which is giving them narrow focus. Saying no is part of your job so that the yeses you've already doled out mean something. If your priorities are constantly changing, you've now made transparency very opaque because people don't know if they can trust your yes or how long it's going to last. So ask yourself in your meetings, are people raising concerns? Are they asking hard questions? Is it nothing but a, a series of serial monologues? You know, or are people exchanging ideas? Here's a really simple criteria. If you don't have somebody coming into your office once or twice a week saying something that makes you uncomfortable, you can be very confident your leadership is ineffective because they're telling somebody. And if they're not telling you, you have to wonder why. And if you concluded that they're not doing that because there isn't anything uncomfortable to say, you're just dumb because even in a team of five people, that's enough complexity for something to not go well in any given week. So if they're not bringing that information to you, you have to wonder where they're bringing it. Every night around the dinner tables of people you lead, stories about you are being told. You have to wonder what stories are being told. uh, And if you don't know, you should want to get in on that conversation. Showing that transparency top down also ensures the other way around, where the people are more transparent, bringing to you what's broken. So that way it's not too late for us to go and fix as leaders. Uh, So great thoughts there. So we talked about safety. You mentioned the word safety several times. So tell me, what is the role of health dissent in fostering safety and dignity? Well, I think when people know that they can disagree, they can offer a different point of view, um, it makes them feel safe. They feel like um, there's not going to be retribution or um, condemnation or ridicule for it. And so you have to practice it. Dissent is a muscle. Most teams find it uncomfortable. Many of us are prone to not want to disagree or to be overly agreeable to the point of muting ourselves. But without differences, there is no innovation, right? Conflict is the raw material of creativity. You have to have the sparks. And so sometimes you have, you have to help your team practice that. So you know, I've had leaders do very simple things like when they know somebody's coming in to present an update on a particular point of view or to pitch an idea, they intentionally have somebody else on the team bring in the, the opposite point of view, to bring the other argument, to bring the data that refutes that point of view. That way it's out there in the open and the debate is a more productive one rather than having it happen out of his hit or her, her view. So allow your team or, or encourage your team to bring in counter arguments to points of view, um, even, even to their own point of view, to bring in pros and cons. Saying simple things like, you know, gosh, I'm not sure I 
I have all the answers here. What do you think? Or I'm feeling a little bit uneasy about that. Maybe we have to learn more. How would you do it? Just extending the dialogue, saying simple things that allow any point in the conversation to be tentative, to be uncertain, to be not definitive. The more declarative you speak, the more certain you sound, the less room for people's voices you make. You know, I have one leader, she's funny, and she, she'll, she'll sort of spout out a very passionate idea, and then she'll say to her team, okay, where am I smoking crack? You know, as a joke to say, where am I crazy? What, what's wrong with this idea? And she'll invite people to throw darts at her ideas. And you just normalize the notion that every idea can be made better. Every conversation can be advanced. And the more people feel like their fingerprints are on the idea, the more they're going to feel ownership of it when it has to come to life. You're creating that space of safety for people to even dispute with the idea. Very critical as a leader. I can certainly see how that will be so effective in running an organization. Now, we know that in this day and age, there's a lot of diversity of thought, diversity in people. There's going to be people who are different from us. How can leaders avoid othering those who are different than them, right? How can they make sure they hear people's voices? First of all, I would start by inventorying the voices you are hearing and inventorying the voices you aren't. If you're honest with yourself, you probably have a set of go-to folks who you rely on. Ask yourself why you're comfortable with those voices and ask yourself whose voices do you avoid? Everybody has a they in organizations. The person who you see and you call her ID and you think, oh, what do they want? Um, the person whose personality or work style or some habit makes you other other them makes you not want to be around them if you have the can have find the courage that's the person you probably most need to be around there's something about who they are and how they show up in the world that means there's something for you to learn from them because if they're rubbing you the wrong way they're pushing a button in you that's data that's feedback and it's not about them and so if there's a rival or a nemesis or a team that your team doesn't want to work with Go find who your they is and figure out how to make them part of your we. Because if your echo chamber is only being filled with voices you already agree with, with people who tell you what you want to hear, with people whose values match your own, you are missing enormous data sources and insight sources by locking them out. And so you have to carefully monitor your echo chamber, carefully monitor your network of people you interact with, carefully monitor the voices you're tuning out because you're missing perspectives that could be richly valuable to you by simply not recognizing your own biases for them or against them. One thing that uh, we've done within our team is whenever there is an opposition or you know difference of opinion with other teams, we've done group game nights where we go to the other team and say, let's go, let's meet for an hour, no agenda. We're just going to play a game and you know, have fun, right? So that has been that's worked out well for us. And after that, the walls come down and we're able to at least have a conversation about the disagreement. Great points there on how you can bring people to the same page. You talked about one of the two questions that people ask is, do I belong? The sense of belonging is so important for people. Why is it important for a leader's trustworthiness to create the sense of belonging for others? If you look at what the research tells us about belonging, you know, the more people feel they belong, the higher their innovation, higher their levels of retention, the higher their levels of productivity, the higher their levels of organizational loyalty. And the, the converse is true as well. Here in the US, Preeti, we've just had 70 million people quit their jobs in the last six months. That's a huge dose of feedback to organizations. 
being told, I don't feel like I matter or belong there. And people now are just growing less tolerant of feeling like an outsider. If you are not intentionally making sure people are showing up to work every day with all of themselves, um, feeling confident that they will be accepted, confident that they don't have to hide or self-edit, confident that at your table, they are just as important as anybody else. Um, you are wasting a resource. You are simply squandering the potential of somebody's talent. Um, and the worst thing is, it's your great talent that are good, that's going to quit and leave, right? Your mediocre talent will quit and stay. And then you have a bunch of underperforming people at your table. So if you are not very intentional about how it is you make sure people know that around your table, they are welcomed, their ideas are welcomed, and their contribution and their identity, however they show up in your organization, is celebrated. You are wasting their talent. The more capacity people have to spend wondering or working to know that they matter or belong, that's capacity they're not investing into performance. And the worst thing is when people doubt whether they belong or whether they matter, they invest in the, in the dangerous counterfeit needs, looking like they matter and looking like they belong. And it becomes performative and self-aggrandizing and self-promotional and it's obnoxious and everybody and they just alienate others. So if you have people doing that, ask yourself why they feel they need to do that. So true. So true. When, when time is not spent in uh, doing the work and instead in making sure that one person feels belongingness as well as or they are uh, spending time improving themselves, then that's certainly not the right way to run the organization. Uh, great insights, Ron. Uh, are there any additional thoughts that you have for our listeners here? It has been a great conversation. You know, Preeti, I would leave your listeners with one final thought about honesty. And I would, sell, I would encourage leaders to start with it by examining their own. The University of Massachusetts research says that we all lie on average between one and two times a day. Could be more, could be less. But all of us have moments where we're less than true to our own values, right? If you think about truth, justice, and purpose, if I were to ask you, and I do this with leaders in my workshops sometimes, and it's very powerful, look over your calendar over the last, say, 10 days. And this will be for nobody else's eyes but yours, so you can be honest with yourself. Pick out seven or 10 random moments where you know you were less than true to yourself, where you were curt with someone at the coffee shop, where you were dismissive of somebody in a meeting, where you didn't give your kids the time they wanted, where you embellished information in a presentation to your boss, where you withheld hard feedback from a colleague or a direct report, where you manipulated information in a slide deck to get your budget approved. Pick just a random eight or 10 moments. And what I promise you is that those moments will not are not random. If you were to really look and examine them, you will see a pattern because all of us choose less than honest behaviors to meet some need or some purpose. We want to engineer a certain response from people. We want to avoid being seen in a certain light. We want to um, avoid a certain pain we believe will come from being more straightforward. We want to make sure others perceive us in a certain way. And you will see that pattern emerge across your choices. If you want to be more true to yourself, you have to be more true about yourself. And if you want to level up your honesty muscle, you have to first be honest about the conditions that bring you to your dishonesty. And start there. And I guarantee you, if you want to earn and keep the trust of others more consistently and more strongly, start with the places that bring you to your dishonesty and work on leveling them up. And I guarantee you, if you face them courageously, you will earn and garner the trust of others in far greater degrees than you can imagine. 
great place to start there on and great final takeaway to start with oneself and observe oneself and where we are honest. So listeners, check out the book, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice and Purpose. Thank you, Ron, for joining us here today. It was a pleasure. Pretty th- my pleasure as well. Thank you so much for having me.